Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Rapper Sterling Davis spent years touring the country and nurturing his love of music. Then one day he gave it all up to become the Trap King. Trap, as in trap, neuter, return the most humane way to curb cat overpopulation. Davis has since become our city's best-known cat advocate, and he's on a mission. The Trap King aims to change stereotypes surrounding men in cat rescue and bridge the gap between black communities and predominantly white animal welfare organizations. Later this hour, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes talks with Sterling Davis about how his path went from rapping to trapping. First, Southern Gothic, original music, and moonshine come together in Darlin Corey, a musical having its world premiere at the Alliance Theatre. This story is set in 1920s Appalachia and explores how a small town held together by secrets becomes unraveled when a new stranger rolls in. Edgar Award-winning author Philip DePoy is the playwright. Sugarland's Grammy Award-winning frontman Christian Bush composed the original folk country music and co-wrote the lyrics with Philip DePoy. Both join me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hi, Lois. Lois, it is awesome to hear your voice. As always. Back at you. I'm curious about the title of the show. There was a song called Darlin' Corey. Did that inspire you, Philip? It did indeed. The story came from a time a long time ago. I was a folklore student in the late 60s and was doing some research in North Georgia when a man sang me that song, sang me Darling Corey. And I said, oh, I love that song. And he said, yes, my mother wrote it. <gasps> and then proceeded to tell me a story about moonshine and buying books for little girls. And the story started that long ago. 
Oh, wow. Well, I know there were several iterations, and sometimes it's Darling Cora. For people who don't know the song, would you give us the gist of the story? Yes, the song starts with, wake up, wake up, darling Corey, what makes you sleep so sound? The revenuers are coming to tear your stillhouse down. Corey is an Irish name that means hollow. It's equally suited for men or for women. And by the end of the song, we have the last verse, dig a hole, dig a hole in the meadow, dig a hole in the cold, cold ground, dig a hole, dig a hole in the meadow to lay darling Corey down. And Christian Bush has cleverly worked that particular lyric into uh, a perfect song at the end of the show. isn't the first time you've composed songs for a musical at the Alliance. In 2017, you wrote the music for Troubadour, which was wonderful, a a rom-com about a country music star. How was your approach to writing the music different from the way you wrote for Troubadour? This show was very different I think because I was asked by Philip and Susan Booth, the director, to start earlier in the process, from what I understand. In Troubadour, I was kind of brought in after the Janice Schaefer, the the playwright, already had most of that completed. And she just needed one song. And then, of course, it tumbled downhill into, I don't know, 15 or 16 songs. (laughs) And uh, in this case... Susan and Philip, you know, had, I guess, sort of mulled over this idea and, and sent out an invitation for me. And, and when I sat with them, I was enthralled and, and in this case, got to start earlier. And in many ways, I'm having a completely different learning experience, collaborating by writing songs at different times. So at the beginning, I wrote three or four songs, Philip, I think. Yeah, I think so. At the table meeting, the first table meeting with Susan, Christian wrote two of them, the songs before we were finished with the first meeting. Oh my God. Yeah, it was pretty fun. And uh, and I'm a quick writer. Wait, wait, wait. Was was Susan talking and were you discussing other things while Christian is multitasking? <laughs> oh, I just happened to have this music and wrote it. Uh, I mean, my experience was Susan said a line, I said a line, Christian said said, that's a song, and took down notes. And suddenly, by the end of the meeting, he already had that song in his head. Oh, my God. That's fantastic. It is. It was a lot of fun. And I guess it was described by Susan. She gave me some pretty strict instructions. She said, this time, I don't want you to put songs in the pockets of the story. I want you to just write and let us work around you. And in a lot of ways, that's how it worked. And Philip started to learn what a late night email looks like from me (laughs) how late is late night well you know i when i write 
my instinct is to make a recording of it. And the recording sometimes is, is very simple. And other times it's very elaborate. It's already orchestrated because of the way I hear it in my head. And it was very typical, like, here's a song. I don't know what this means. I don't even know if it belongs here, but here's a song. And many times he'd be like, well, I don't know where it belongs either, but I love it. And then Susan would just be like, uh, I don't know if this is what we're talking about. And then four months later, it's magically in the piece. Hmm. So there's, there's a lot of, we influenced each other as we started to put the pieces of this story together. Yeah, it, I could see where it was very different from working on Troubadour because here, essentially, you were present at the creation. I was, I was very blessed to be trusted that early in the game, especially with a story who has its you know, origination in an actual folk song. Philip, I read that you take on Greek themes with Appalachian stories and supernatural characters. Please tell us how those things coexist in Darlin' Corey. Well, it all starts with mythology anyway. Most of the folk songs that I grew up listening to and that I learned and recorded in North Georgia in the late 60s and early 70s have deep roots in European mythology, especially Scots-Irish mythology, but uh, a lot of these things can be traced back to quite early Greek mythology, and all of those themes are in the play. I would say it's part Greek mythology, part Appalachian murder ballad, and part Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, uh, all wrapped up in a very attractive package with beautiful music by Christian Bush. <laughs> wow! So, other than Corey, who are the main characters? The town is led by Pastor Bailey. He's the scion of the town. His daughter, Honor, is a key figure in the play. There are characters who are friends with the pastor. There's a store owner, a man named Tucker, who's from another a larger town who settled in the smaller town of Blue Mountain and runs this tiny little store they have there. And uh, there is our friend Doug, uh, one of our favorite characters who came back from World War I not entirely whole. And he's partly a tragic story and partly comic relief, I'd say, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, there's the trappings of all the characters that are very, very real in the mountains, because I grew up in a town like this, you know, I grew up in Appalachia. And even though I grew up into the 70s and 80s, that's not that different. The same characters were there, <laughs> you know, you know, the pastor kind of runs the city and everyone falls in line in relationship to that guy. Where I grew up there, <laughs> there were people who were, I don't know, you might call them psychics or you might call them if they went to church, we called them seers. So they were just mediums or, or specially touched people that also believed in Jesus, you know, <laughs> and it somehow made it easier for people to understand that these people knew things you didn't know. If they had gone to church, you mean, it made them more acceptable. Yeah, if they were, you would believe it. Like the seers my mom took us to, he was amazing. But at the same time, you know, you would think that a person like that would get completely, you know, shoved out of a community like that. 
But did he foresee your future in music? Oh, yeah. And which was very odd because my future at the time was to run a cannery. <laughs> so like those bushes. Yeah, those bushes. And so during the time that I would see him and my, it was, you know, my mother kind of encouraged us because she loved to go up there and see him because she thought it was both fun and interesting. But w- once you experience a seer like this in the mountains, you're like, wow, okay. And trees take on a different, you know, look outside of that guy's house. You're like, wow, are his trees smarter than my trees? Like, <laughs> you know, like, how does this work? And the more I started telling Philip about this, the more he just started rubbing his hands together. And he's like, I got all sorts of crazy ideas, you know? So those characters are also in this. It really did connect when he started talking about that. It really connected with an idea that I had originally wanted to have in this that had something to do with Macbeth's witches and a combination of Christian's experience and some of my experiences in the mountains combined to create these characters, the crows, to witch women who live on the fringes of the town, but also influence a lot of the experiences that people have in the town. I think Christian and I both like those characters maybe better than anybody else because they're just so strange. They're, they're clearly mystics. They're the oddballs of the town. And I won't speak for Christian, but I personally was the oddball of my town for a while. So I identify with them. Yeah. Well, who write for oddballs? Indeed. Uh, who write for oddballs? And oddly, I was telling Christian this the other day, oddly, his uh, take on those characters in, in a couple of songs is exactly Joseph Campbell's take on the mystic and the artist. These are people who see things that most people don't see and translate them from the mystical to the ordinary so that they can communicate them. That's what a song is. A song is an inspiration from some mystical experience that is translated through music and lyrics so that people can hear it, enjoy it, and get something out of it. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Philip DePoy and Christian Bush about Darlin Corey. The musical will have its world premiere at the Alliance Theater September 8th. I'm just marveling at both of you trafficking here in classical Greek drama, Shakespeare, 1920s moonshine and Joseph Campbell and myth. And it just says so much about commonality. There are these basic human themes and experiences. And if people could just get over some of what divides us, my God, look at how much there is that we share. Yeah. And it's that time of year and really that time in in the earth history to look outside your window and start tracking the things that are repeating, (laughs) Uh, you know? Well, I would love to know how you co-wrote lyrics. Let me just say that Christian is primarily responsible for most of the lyrics you hear in all of the songs. My contribution had to do with primarily with writing a scene And then Susan Booth saying, you know, that could be better in a song. And Christian very cleverly taking some things out of the scene, some words or some ideas or some phrases and working his magic on them and creating a song from that. 
Wouldn't you say that's right, Christian? Oh yeah. I mean, at my base basis nature, I'm a collaborator. So Philip's writing is very inspiring to hear the song in it. And it's an old adage that, you know, nobody ever got rich in the music business being greedy, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and there's a, there's a real reason for it besides it being kind of a fun thing to say Mm -hmm. and a, and a good lesson to remember, but I've been writing songs for me and myself for a long time. And I'm kind of more interested in what happens when I rub up against what you think. So uh, it makes me a sort of a easy shoe fit for somebody like Susan to throw me into the boiling pot for whatever she's cooking up. (laughs) And (laughs) I seem to enjoy it too. I, I, Philip's stuff has just really inspired me in a lot of ways. I wouldn't have written some songs like these had he not done what he does. (laughs) Well, let's talk about the song, Ain't You Got a Daughter. Ain't you got a daughter, ain't you got no sense? Who's gonna bring you the water? Who's gonna mend your pants? If you had a boy child, you might have a chance to keep your name. It's not the same, ain't you got a daughter? Christian. I read you might have incorporated a little bit of your personal life into these songs. (laughs) You have a daughter. Was she in mind? Yes, very much. I've had a very interesting life so far. One of the experiences I had was playing for the Nobel Peace Prize concert. And I think it was 2011. Uh, They were sharing the prize between three women for the first time. It was the woman who started the Arab Spring and a president of of an African country and her second in command. And I got to sit with them on the afternoon at the, I mean, it was a crazy experience to sit at like a a castle in Norway and speak to winners like this. But I had an audience and I I couldn't imagine what I needed to talk to them about because I'm a man and all the artists were women. And I just, Sugar Land is considered a a female act. So I, I got to ask a question. And I asked, Hey, I'm a father, a new father. What's the one thing I can do? And they said, well, the thing you can do is give your daughter permission to go to school. Mm. And I I thought to myself, why would I deny her the ability? And then I realized that it's not everybody has that option. And not only that, how endorsing that as a man or as a father could change the course. One thing could change the course of an entire our entire culture. And when this idea came up in this particular situation with Philip and and Susan talking about this, I immediately pulled out that feeling and was like, I already write songs for a woman to sing in country music. (laughs) And I, and I deal in a lot of themes that I I don't always understand as a man, but I I try to learn. And this idea is a, a thing I could learn, which is how do I write a song that reminds you and in some ways might shame you if you listen to it the right way for your transgression of getting between a girl and a book. Oh, wow. Well, what you are talking about also brings Malala to mind and how she fought and nearly was killed for just hoping little girls could go to school. I mean, I'd have to say that that woman 
is at least a percentage of the inspiration for the character of Corey in this. Do you see how cross-cultural you are? I mean, I think maybe you should put this before the UN. I think we probably should. We're only missing, I think, Christian, correct me if I'm wrong, Albanian folk culture. Everything else in the world is already in. Give me a half hour. I can work on it. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know more about the contemporary events, because so far we've touched on all these other currents, but how do you bring contemporary events into a musical set in the 1920s? Well, one of the things that we talked about early on, uh, after we decided that we were expanding beyond the just the notion of little girls learning to read, was the question of this character's dismantling the patriarchy in her town. And so the four of us, uh, Susan, Christian, me, and Amanda Watkins, our producer, were on Zoom, felt like every day during the COVID year, during last year, talking about dismantling a man who was running that part of the world so incorrectly. It was terrifically satisfying for me, and I think for all of us, to talk about taking that guy apart Mm -hmm. and bringing him down, if that is not too, I'm sure you understand who I'm talking about. I think I know who you're talking about. (laughs) So that's the contemporary part, smashing the patriarchy. It was for us when we were dealing with it, yeah. You truly can't help but let the world around you be a part of what you're doing because you're expressing yourself. And in a lot of ways, reorganizing your priorities because of what's going on outside your window, whether it be trying to stay alive or suddenly watching the, the world start to address again the, the racism questions that are going on in our culture. It, you can't help but let all that stuff in. And the way that it, it kind of works in a play like this is many ways the way um, like a Marvel movie or a, a science fiction movie might, might help you. It puts all of the people and the setting in a town just next to the town you're in so that you're not really talking about the people. I'm not really talking about the pastor I know, but we're talking about one in the, maybe in the next town over. And whenever we can kind of disassociate ourselves with the actual human, we can start to see it as a teaching hospital, <laughs> you know, right. like now we're, we're starting to understand that everyone's action, everyone's movement, everyone's dialogue, everyone's song, everyone's journey is here to help us understand what in the world are we going to do now? You know, most of us haven't seen the bottom half of each other's faces in a long time. Uh, like our political system is like being funneled through 16 different screens. We can't figure out which one to trust. Like, I'm not sure, is it, can we eat again? Can we not eat again? You know, I, I don't know, but a work of art like this, a performance can help give us something to start imitating and start thinking through like, well, if that was me, what would I do? Sugarland's Grammy award-winning frontman and composer Christian Bush with playwright and novelist Philip DePoy Darling Corey will have its world premiere at the Alliance Theatre on September 8th. You can find more information on our website, 
wabe.org slash City Lights. In a moment, we'll listen back to my conversation with Atlanta photographer Lucinda Bonnet. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Long before the social media term existed, the art photographer Lucinda Bonin was an influencer. The High Museum holds the Bonin Collection, which makes the High one of the nation's leading institutions for contemporary photography. With a number of Miss Bunnan's own work there, her influence is felt both in and behind the work on display. When Lucinda Bunnan released her photography book, Gathered, she and I gathered in the WABE studios to talk about her work and take a look at some photos from the book. This is one I love. I found this typewriter in a dump in North Carolina, way, way down, and I had to crawl down through the, all the rubbish. Okay, what were you doing in the dump? I was, it was, happened to be next to the trail. <laughs> okay. I mean, people was, were driving in and just dumping their stuff down this hill. And I saw this, and I thought, thought about the writer that was throwing it away. I brought it home and put it on my coffee table next to a Louise Nevelson, a, a one-of-a-kind Louise Nevelson made out of wood. And everybody that came in my living room said, ah, oh, I love that typewriter. So and much for the sculpture. So I sold the <laughs> Louise Nevelson. <laughs> I wasn't going to have that around if nobody was going to look at it. Oh, I think that's great. So, and, and what a tribute to the writer in saving, immortalizing that typewriter. The horse is intriguing. I, it's something that I found long ago. It was a weather vane once. I love it because it's, it's a mess. Well, the, well, <laughs> yes and no. I, I mean, the way well, it's, it's put together, but the lines are beautiful. Isn't it? It's just Wonderful. This collection of photographs gathered has its genesis in your own house. Please tell us about the objects you've gathered for this series. Well, I'll tell you how it happened. Uh, my granddaughter, who was living with me, was going off on her honeymoon, and I thought, what am I going to do next? I need to do something. 
And I suddenly had this idea to photograph the stuff in my house because they'd been talking about it, I guess. And, um, and then a friend of mine came, and I said, I need a backdrop. And he went in my garage closet and came out with two backdrops, a light-colored one and a dark-colored one. So I set them up and put a table underneath each one and started taking stuff out to photograph it. And um, anyway, I'd done quite a few of them when Barbara Griffin called me. So she came out and she looked and she said, I think this could be a book. She said, I'm going to call Lori Shock. And Lori came and she said, I see it as a an accordion. An accordion. I said, that sounds like fun. <laughs> That's how it all came to be, thanks to Barbara Griffin and Laurie Schock. Well, and thanks to you for uh, moving forward instead of looking back. Not that there's anything wrong with an artist's retrospective, but it's very impressive that you're not at a loss for new ideas. Well, and I, I like to be an inspiration at my age. Well, you are. Um, There's a rough-hewn quality to the work, um, from the paint spatters on the drop cloths to the objects themselves, right. many of them. Why did you take this approach? Well, I grew up on a farm, one bathroom away from my sister, who I say she grew up on an estate. She lay on her chaise long reading movie magazines, dreaming about hats with veils and open-toed shoes, and I was out mucking stalls. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I always had, I wore blue jeans all the time, and I just liked the outdoors and the rough and tumble. And so that's kind of what my collection is all about. A lot of things are broken. We call it wabi-sabi. And wabi-sabi is not quite right. It's the opposite of the Japanese aesthetic of refinement right. and perfection. Right. Wabi-sabi is more like life itself. Exactly. I've had people walking in my woods bringing me things that are in the book, actually. There's a deer head that um, Michael Morell found for me, and I have it in my living room. And, I mean, it's nothing but a piece of wood sort of sitting on a stand, but it looks like a deer head. And you know how to frame it. These objects you have all around your home, what's the connection between art making and art collecting? Um, I think it's the same aesthetic. I think what I see through my camera lens is kind of like what I see in the antique store. But it's a matter of seeing what what you look for and what you see. Yeah, and, and that makes me wonder because it's important to keep in mind the recognition of photography as a serious art form is still rather recent. Yeah. And here in Atlanta, that's thanks in no small part to you and the work you did, as well as mentoring others. 
you co-founded the Atlanta Photography Gallery and Nexus, which is now the Atlanta Contemporary. What was it about photography that spoke to you as a form of artistic expression? Well, I I made a film, and uh, I went on a trip with my family, and I decided I was going to make a film before I ever had a camera. I bought a Super 8 movie camera and made this film and came back with it and showed it to my filmmaker friends, and they said, you have a really interesting eye. You seem to be seeing things that most people don't see. You should take a course in photography. So when I took this course in photography, my teacher said I should not try to reinvent the wheel. I should see what other people are doing. So I went to the only gallery in New York that was showing photographs, which was the Whitkin Gallery, and Lee Whitkin sat right at the door when you came in and grabbed you (laughs) and took you around, or took me around. I guess he did that to everybody. And I learned a lot about other people's photographs. And um, he said, you need to start buying, or your museum should start collecting photographs. Other museums in the country are are doing that. And so I started out with Goodman Victor, and he was like, well, you know, it's not really an art form. This was in what year? This, uh, in the 70s. Okay, so Goodman Victel was director of the High Museum at that time. Right. He didn't think photography was really an art form in the 70s? Really, and they didn't have a class at the Atlanta College of Art because they didn't think it was a... My my friend Tulio Petrucci talked them into making a class, and I was in that first class for one semester. I graduated after the first semester. I graduated <laughs> myself. What a because, prodigy! Well, I I had made all these wonderful pictures, and I had had them in a show at the High Museum in January. I started in September, and in January I already had a show in the museum. Atlanta art photographer Lucinda Bunnett. More information about her book, Gathered, is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll hear about the rapper who quit his music career to start a cat rescue. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Becoming successful in the music industry is no easy feat, and rapper Sterling Davis knows this well. Davis spent years touring the country and nurturing his love of music. Then one day he gave it all up to become the Trap King. Trap, as in trap, neuter, return the most humane way to curb cat overpopulation. A lifelong feline lover, Davis has since become our city's best-known cat advocate, and he's on a mission to change stereotypes surrounding men in cat rescue and bridge the communication gap between black communities and predominantly white animal welfare organizations. Recently, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes talked 
to Sterling the Trap King Davis and learned how his path went from rapping to trapping. So I've been into music my whole life. A lot of my family members would rap or play instruments. My family, we grew up, you would have to play a sport or an instrument. So I <laughs> grew up playing basketball, football, and I would always get stuck with the violin. <laughs> no kidding. We, yeah, we moved around so much. And when you move around, the only instruments left is never the cool ones like the drums <laughs> or the keyboard or the saxophone. It's the violin. But even then, I didn't mind the violin as much. I always just love music. So it's a beautiful instrument. Yeah. And I wish that I felt about it back then the way I feel now, because now mm. I think it's cool. Back then, everybody on the football team was making fun of me for playing Mary Had a Little Lamb. So <laughs> <laughs> it didn't seem as cool back then. But now I wish I would have stuck with it more. But I've always loved music and loved entertaining. So I always wanted to do that. And I wanted to use music to shine a positive light, to make a positive difference in the world. How did you get started in actually having a career in music? A friend of mine named Jaron Benton, he had signed a deal with a local label and he started to grow with that. And I started touring with him, meeting other people and just getting more involved as time went on. The story that I have heard, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is things were going pretty good with the music career. You were on tour and you were home for a break and just looking for a really low stress gig to kind of fill the time till you went back on tour. Right. So you learn being on tour, you learn really fast that in between tours, the breaks, you want to try to do something positive with your time. Because if not, you just spend money, get into trouble, waste time. It's counterproductive. So yeah, in between tours, I was finally starting to get to a point where I really wanted to be with music. I've always been a little different with the way I dress and my content was different <laughs> about what I, the things I would talk about. So it was a uphill battle for me. And I finally was getting to the point where I was seeing the results in music that I, I wanted to see. And I was getting ready to go on a tour with somebody I really look up to, a guy named Tech Nine. And it was gonna be a popular tour. And in between that tour and waiting for that next tour is when I took the break. I was looking for something to do. And I saw in Craigslist an ad for helping scoop cat litter. I did not know that that would change my life. <laughs> I did not know that that would not only change it immediately, but it kind of brought everything in my life together. It made things make sense almost. Yeah. Talk about a pivot. Right. Because it was before I never liked the politics of music or entertaining. I didn't, I didn't like that people would tell me, well, you paint your nails or you talk about stuff like this and that isn't really masculine or hip hop you know you should talk about this or or say it like this so when i got into this world of cat rescue i realized what i was was good people thought it was cool to paint my nails and my different outlook the fact that i loved cats people loved it and it was really like an epiphany for me because i felt like everything that i had been doing with music and public speaking and and being somewhat in the public eye, I was training to deliver this message about cats and rescue. So it really came together in an amazing way. Like it was when people say an epiphany, 
I really feel like that was it. You mentioned the hyper-masculinity of rap music and not feeling like you completely fit into that mold. I think there's something to be said there as well for what people normally associate with people who love cats. It tends to be assumed that that is a more feminine trait. Do you come up against that? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the biggest thing that I've dealt with. I deal with those stereotypes and things like race more than I deal with cats and rescue actually. I've I've gone to schools and I've had young men, young boys tell me that they thought all dogs were male and all cats were female. Oh and wow. They really believe that. And I've said this before and I I know I kind of raised a few eyebrows, but a lot of that with putting that gender that on an animal as far as a man should have a dog or a female should have a cat. And the way we treat cats in this country and the way we treat women in this country, I think it says a lot about why we're struggling with cats right now. And we're struggling for a lot of our women to be respected and looked at a certain way in this country. So I, I think it goes hand in hand. So I'm, I'm usually promoting cat rescue and I'm donating and I'm trying to get people educated on TNR, but I'm also trying to debunk that crazy cat lady stereotype. I'm trying to break stereotypes as far as toxic masculinity and what a man is supposed to do or what type of animal a certain person or gender should have. So I, I definitely run into that stuff a lot. As a Black man in cat rescue, I may be just about one of one in a lot of ways. So I'm, I'm constantly trying to debunk and, and break down a lot of stereotypes. So you mentioned TNR for those who are unfamiliar. Will you explain? So TNR is trap to return. It is the humane alternative for death or euthanasia for stray and feral cat populations. It's the process where cats are caught in humane traps. They're not hurt. They're taken to low-cost spay, neuter, vaccination clinics, and they're returned back to their colony. And so this prevents overpopulation and spreading disease. I dedicate my life to it because I, I see how important it is. And, I, and a lot of people don't know that our tax dollars are paying for a lot of these animals to be euthanized when we would be able to have programs where these cats are being humanely vaccinated, spayed, neutered, and taken back out to help control the rodent population and they're not hurting anybody. So can you walk someone through what a typical TNR trip is like? So, yeah. So it's it's crazy because none of, nothing about it is typical. You get different animals, different characters all the time. But usually I'll get a call or email and someone will tell me they're having a cat issue. It'll be an apartment complex or a neighborhood so the first thing I do is I try to go out to the apartment complex or to the housing authority, the HOA group, and demonstrate what TNR is and what I'm doing. I want to inform people first. You don't want to just go in a neighborhood, start setting traps, and sure, <laughs> and just <laughs> think it's gonna be okay. It's, I trust me. I learned the hard way with that, and you don't want to be the the bald, tattooed black guy in somebody's yard at two o'clock in the morning, like, no, I'm just here for the cats. And they're like, sure you are, honey, get the gun, because this guy's crazy. I've learned the hard way to make sure that you educate first. You go to the communities, you talk to the HOAs, you talk to the apartment complex management, and you make sure that they understand exactly what you're doing. That way you can find the people that love the cats and the people that don't care for the cats much. And once you educate the community, 
then you can go through the process of explaining to the, the people that feed the cats to not feed the cats so that they respond to the food that's inside of my traps. Once you educate, I can go out, I'll catch the kitties. I usually drive out to Atlanta Humane Society where I'll spend a night in my RV so that I'm there first thing in the morning at 7.30 <laughs> to turn those cats in, get them spayed, neutered, and vaccinated. Uh, the males, I'll keep the males for 24 hours. I keep the females for 48 hours for them to heal. And then I return them back to their colony. And how can someone recognize a cat that's been treated versus a cat that's not spayed or neutered or vaccinated? I am so glad you asked that question because I shouldn't have left it out. You cannot forget the tip. The ear tip is a big deal. If you uh, follow me on Facebook or Instagram or anything, or you see the logo, uh, the Trap King logo there, one of the ears is tipped. And that is usually how you would know, how you would recognize that a cat has been through the TNR process. And it's real important. That ear tip is really important because it's dangerous for a cat to be caught and go through that process or someone attempt to go through that process as far as sedating the cat to fix her, him or her again. So right. um, the ear tip is really important to recognize that ear tip. Right on. And so you have still participated in a musical career. Can you talk a little bit about some of the music you've created that circles back to your TNR? Yeah, it's funny how it all came together and connected because originally I was totally against involving music in my cat rescue for, for a couple of reasons. For one, because the rap that I did was really edgy. It was a uh, different. I didn't want to make a mockery of the music that I was making by making cat raps. I thought maybe it wouldn't be cool or maybe it wouldn't be fun. And then a buddy of mine who I talked to, Mosho, I am Mosho, he's a cat rapper and that's a friend of mine. And, and that's kind of his thing. I mean, I do rescue, but he does rap and I didn't want to step on his toes or sure. be disrespectful to what he's doing. I wanted to make sure that it was understood that he is the cat rapper. I'm the cat rescuer guy. At first I was, I was like, I'm not going to do the rap thing, but I saw that it, it helped with the mission. That's one of the things that I want to do is grab the attention of different demographics and men to let them know, because I was trained by women. Uh, when I'm out doing cat rescue, I'm usually only with women. Uh, it's, it's usually middle-aged white women, and I'm probably the only man or the only black person there. So I saw that using rap and hip hop and music was attracting different demographics mm -hmm. and that kind of changed my mind with doing music and it's fun so yes <laughs> the song about cats <laughs> let's go trap check it out Tomahawk, but I'm coming through. Yeah. Them drop traps, remote control. Them nuts is gone, no reproduce. Trap king, he got the juice. Tails up, I'm flexing too. Ha. Trap queens on my team, make no excuse, just execute. Uh, right. That's right, we chasing tail. Man, they can't wait to bail. Them trap doors go up, they be out like they can't hell. That's TNR, you don't know. And it's helped. It's helped with uh, visiting schools and dealing with uh, teenagers and younger children to just help them see it from a different light you know when they see the 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 cat lady feeding the colonies i don't want people to say oh there's that crazy 
cat lady. They instead they're gonna call her a trap queen and they're gonna remember one of the rap songs and they're gonna go help her out. They're gonna think she's cool versus, you know, uh, she's just crazy and bringing more cats around here. That's awesome. So aside from educating kids, how else are you spreading your word? I travel the country a lot because I live in my RV. I can travel around. I've been traveling lately with a buddy of mine, Nathan, the cat lady and Raruva, a food company, a cat food company we work with. We've been going out, doing TNR, educating on TNR and donating thousands of dollars worth of Raruva cat food to colony feeders and rescue groups. That has helped out a lot, as well as with my buddy, Nathan, last year we started tabby dates we launched tabby dates which is a dating app for cat lovers oh finally (laughs) now i won't i want to clarify this because when we first started it we started it last year august 8th which is international cat day but i want to clarify because when we started it people thought that it was a breeding app that we were looking to connect cats with other cats (laughs) like no that is totally not what we're doing we're to connect cat people with other cat people and if, and we did it because again the compassion fatigue and burnout in cat rescue is something fun to do it's so it's a way to help cat rescues and cat people meet up meet other you don't have to just be in love you can meet other people to rescue cats you can help with adoption or fostering but we started that and again that's something that's fun as well as educational the main project and I've talked about this before main project that I want to do I have a dream of a fraternity sorority based on TNR and cat rescue do tell fraternities and sororities when people graduate college they're still connected to the fraternity or sorority meaning that they still volunteer and they still pay their dues so I want to take that concept and move it something over to like a fraternity and sorority for cat rescue. You think of like Sons of Anarchy meets TNR where you got patches on your jacket for how many lives you save. So if you got to 50 lives saved, you get this patch. And if you get to 500 lives saved, then you get this amazing patch on your jacket. I'm taking what people love about fraternities, sororities, and even gangs, because I, I want to use this to help Bring kids out of that. I, I've been in gangs growing up before, and I know what that's like to want to be a part of something and not have nothing positive around to be a part of. So I want to take that concept of fraternity and sorority and even gangs and do something like a club for TNR and cat rescue. Like I say, you imagine people stepping out and everybody got their jackets on and they traps and they about to go out here and trap. It's, it's just a cool and a fun approach to getting new and different demographics involved and making more people aware. I absolutely love it. A cool cat club. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of words like clouder and everything. I don't know. So it's so many things. I feel like the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts should have a TNR badge. Yeah. Yeah. Everything they do is about community and outdoors. And that's exactly what TNR is for the most part. And I'm I've been working on that too. I really hope that we can get the Cub Scouts to add a TNR badge for all the troops. Well, Sterling, thank you so much for the work you've been doing, not only for the animals, but just to spread the word in different communities that none of us really have to fit into a certain box. You're quite an individual, and I love that you encourage that in others. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's an honor. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an honor and it feels amazing because at first everybody was just calling me crazy too. <laughs> well, crazy ain't so bad, man. Right, right, right. 
Atlanta's trap king, Sterling Davis. You can learn more about his nonprofit Trap King Humane Cat Solutions on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11, artist and social worker Franco Bejarano tells us about his poignant contribution to MARTA's Artbound program. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.